Morning, everyone. Um, today's reading is um, we're reading from Ruth chapter two. Um, if you want to follow along in these black Bibles, it's on page four hundred and ten. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in in whose eyes I find favour. Naomi said to her, go ahead my daughter. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. 
He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Good morning once again. It's a delight to be with you as we keep working our way through this wonderful little book of Ruth. If you weren't here with us last week, can I encourage you to uh, log on to our website or perhaps use our podcasting app and listen to the sermon from last week that Tim Patrick, who is the principal of the Bible College here, uh, preached to us last week. Tim helpfully unpacks some of the background associated with the book of Ruth. He reminded us that Ruth is said in the time of the judges and that that was a turbulent time in Israel's history. And as we read through this letter, it's worth remembering that things weren't necessarily as they should have been in the time of the judges. Life was especially tough, particularly if you were a woman. It wasn't an easy time to live. And Tim got us thinking about Naomi's husband, Elimelech, If you were here last week, Tim spent a fair bit of time in the first five verses of chapter 1. And he wanted us to see that for Elimelech, when the going got tough in the promised land, the land that was supposed to flow with milk and honey, Elimelech packed up and he headed for Moab. And Tim helped us to see that that was probably what Elimelech should not have done. He shouldn't have left the land of milk and honey to go to Moab. And particularly, his sons shouldn't have married Moabite women. Well, today we pick up the story with Naomi. She's Elimelech's widow now. And she's back in the land that she came from, back in Israel. Naomi's daughter-in-law is with her, but her husband and her sons are dead. I want to say from the outset this morning that I'm very thankful for Tim Patrick and for the work that he's done on the book of Ruth. Much of what I say today, I've learned from listening to some of Tim's previous sermons that he's preached on this passage. I should say, though, any missteps that I take are not Tim's fault. They are entirely my own. Um, Well, let's go back to Naomi. At the end of chapter 1, she's just changed her name, and she's now calling herself Mara, which our narrator tells us means bitter. And she says in Verse 21 of chapter 1, which you can find on page 409 of your black Bibles, if you haven't got them open, please turn there. This is what Naomi says. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And yet for for Naomi, it's not all bad news, is it? Naomi has Ruth with her, and Ruth has pledged herself to Naomi about as firmly as she possibly can. And the chapter has ended on this kind of optimistic note as well. The barley harvest was about to begin. Food, that very thing or lack of it that drove Naomi and Elimelech to Moab in the first place, food is about to come into the grain houses in Israel 
It's barley harvest time. That's the way that chapter 1 ended. And chapter 2 also kind of starts with this really positive start. Because we're introduced to a new character. He's a good one. He's called Boaz. And there's a kind of clever literary device going on here because Boaz is being introduced to us by the narrator before he turns up in the storyline, before he turns up in the plot. And the narrator is telling us what to think of Boaz before we properly meet him, so that when we do, we already have a a picture in our mind of what he's like. And our narrator tells us early on two things about Boaz. Firstly, he's a relative of Naomi's. That's going to become very important for us in chapter 3. And secondly, he's a man of some standing. So before we meet Boaz in the story, we already are kind of prepared for him. We've been butted up, so to speak. We know he's one of the good guys in the story. And then in verse 2, we return to Naomi, empty Naomi as she calls herself, to see her daughter-in-law about to head out to look for food for her. A few verses back, she was kind of shaking her fist at God, and, and here she has someone who's about to head out, not back into Moab, but into the promised land to supply her with what she needs. This is what Ruth says. She says, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. And Naomi says to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. You know, in our, in our modern world, living in, in the lovely city of Adelaide, we're pretty isolated from agricultural practices, aren't we? That's just how things are for us in the city. It's not really kind of ignorance fault or anything like that, but for most of us, food comes from the supermarket, not from the field. And even those of us who have had some experience of working on the land... Today, farming is so mechanised, we have so much different machinery, that agriculture is very different today from what it was in the time of Ruth. The reality is that for many in the ancient world, just getting enough food was difficult. The book starts off, doesn't it, by speaking of famine. Food sometimes just ran out in the ancient world. But even today, even with our tractors and our mechanical harvesters and our chemical sprays, agriculture is quite hard work. Getting food onto our plates is not easy. This is something that we don't have to be involved with on a daily basis. When Meredith and I lived in Warrnambool, we had uh, quite a large backyard and I tried having a go at growing some vegetables in the garden. I learned just how much work it is to get a plate of peas or beans onto the table. You've got to dig water, tend, and then even when they've grown, you've got to pick them and kind of clean them and all that sort of stuff. It's quite hard work. It's fiddly, labor-intensive, often heavy work just getting beans on a plate. But for Ruth, living in the ancient world, collecting food is going to be a big part of her life. It's going to be about how she survives. But she's not a farmer, She's just gleaning in the fields. That means she's searching through the paddocks after the harvesters have been there and she's picking up any leftover grain kernels. Let me show you what Ruth was looking for. I've got some, got some, uh, some here. This is wheat, not, not barley, and it's already had the husks taken off it. 
So it looks a little bit different perhaps to what she was looking for in her fields. This is half a kilo or a little bit more than half a kilo of wheat. The commentators say that in the kind of Babylonian times, the times of this story was written, a labourer would be paid about half to a kilo of grain for a day's work. So you take it that a gleaner, that's Ruth, would probably collect less grain than this in a day's worth of work. This is what Ruth was looking for, about this much grain in her day-to-day life. And for us, gleaning seems like a pretty strange thing to do. It's not something that, we'd be very, not something that we're used to doing. So when our fridge is empty, we don't go out to a field to look for grain, do we? But for Ruth, gleaning in fields was kind of the equivalent of social security of the day. There was no Centrelink in that time. Those who owned fields, though, were required by the law to leave the very edges of the fields or any drop bits of grain for people just like Ruth. That's what the Israelite law demanded. Let me read to you from Leviticus chapter 19 where we see this form of social security kind of outlined for us. They've got the words on the screen and if you want to pop them up for us as we, as we work our way through. So what Leviticus says, says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. We see this idea of gleaning set out in the law. And again, we see it in Deuteronomy. This time it comes with a bit of a, an explanation as to why this is part of the Israelite law. It says this in Deuteronomy, when you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat olives from your tree, don't go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, don't go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. See, Ruth in our story, she is, of course, a foreigner. She's from Moab. She's a widow. And having left Moab with her parents there as well, she's essentially fatherless as well. So this idea of gleaning in the field is very much designed for people like Ruth, isn't it? It's to help her live. It must have been a hard living though, don't you think? One of the commentators that I read this week kind of compared the idea of gleaning, sort of like the ancient rural version of collecting aluminium cans today. There's no glamour in doing it kind of looked down on by the rest of society and you barely scrape by. It's hard work. I'm going to give you an idea of the sort of stuff that Ruth would have had to have done. Um, just, gonna, like, just imagine how hard it would be if I take some of this. Imagine this is like a grain field, but if I grab some of this now and just kind of throw it across the floor like that and your job is to go and pick that up, it would be difficult, wouldn't it? You'd have to be down on your hands and knees and you've got to collect a bag this size in your whole day to feed yourself. It's kind of, there's nothing particularly attractive about the idea of gleaning. Exhausting, demoralizing, hard work. You're essentially scavenging for your food. 
And this is the life that awaits Ruth and Naomi. And they're in the land that's supposed to flow with milk and honey. And now they're scavenging. It's got me thinking as I was reading this this week about how we trust God when things get tough. See, Ruth has pledged her allegiance to Naomi's God. She's gone all in. And the result of going all in for her is that she's out in a field gleaning, scavenging. She's trusting in God that she and Naomi won't starve. And the result is she goes gleaning. For us today, we have lots of food. Food's probably not our problem in life. But there's still lots of things in our lives that are uncertain, aren't they? I wonder what it is for you. Maybe it's where will the next paycheck come from? That's not that dissimilar from the idea that we see with Ruth. Maybe you're wondering if someone in your family is going to survive an illness that they've got at the moment. Perhaps you're wondering about your kids at school. How are they going to survive the attacks of the school bully? There's still plenty of opportunities in our lives for us to exercise what it means for us to trust in God, isn't there? Ruth goes out into the fields, gleaning. Our story goes on, and it's perhaps unsurprising that we find that Ruth is gleaning in the field of the man we've already been introduced to, Boaz. We've already been prepared, haven't we? We know he's an upright man, and finally he arrives in verse 5 of chapter 2, and he asks his foreman, who does this young woman belong to? As you read it, do you wonder why he says that? See that? I get the picture that there's a number of people out at harvest time, men doing the reaping probably, women sort of gathering up the sheaves, tying them together. And Boaz asks about Ruth. Why do you think he did that? Perhaps he knew everyone else in the field. Maybe they'd kind of been through the employment interviews and he knew exactly who the people working in his field were. But as I read this story, I can't help but wonder, did Boaz look across the field at Ruth and think to himself, oh, there's a beautiful woman. Do you think he was romantically motivated from the first time that he saw Ruth? Well, we're never given in the story the motivation for why Boaz does this. Instead, we're simply reminded that Ruth is a Moabitess, that she comes from Moab with Naomi, and that she's been working hard in the field. The overseer says this of her, he says, she came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. And so Boaz responds by encouraging Ruth to stay in his field. And he sweetens it for Ruth. He says, I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And if you get thirsty, feel free to drink from the water jars that the men have filled. See, by allowing Ruth to glean in his field, Boaz isn't being especially kind, is he? After all, we've just seen that that's what's required by the law. It's similar to you and I going about paying our taxes. It's simply what we're required to do by the law. But here we start to see the character of Boaz being revealed. He goes one step further and he offers her his protection. Does that make Boaz a surprising man? I'd like to hope not really, right? After all, stopping a widow in your own field from being abused by men hardly seems like an optional extra, does it? 
And we can only really guess if, if and why protection was actually necessary. But I imagine that fields in the time of the judges weren't particularly safe. In fact, today it's not always a safe place for women in fields today, is it? And there are all sorts of industries where women have a hard time in life. The film industry has been one prominent example recently. Boaz makes it abundantly clear. My men won't hurt you. And what more, he says to Ruth as well, take advantage of the work of my men. They've already carted the water. Feel free to take a drink from the water they've already gathered. Would have been hot work, I imagine, gleaning in the field. And Boaz says to Ruth, drink from this water wherever you feel like you would like to. Why do you reckon Boaz does this? What's in it for him? Well, Ruth falls face down in front of him and she asks the same question. And this is what Boaz says. He says, he already knows about Ruth. From verse 11, it says, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, Boaz has already heard of Ruth and all that she's done for Naomi, and he's heard how she's taken refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. That's a phrase that we'll revisit next week in chapter 3. And Boaz is entrusting her here to the goodness and the kindness of the God of Israel. And yet the day is still not over, is it? At mealtime, Boaz invites Ruth to come and eat with him and his harvesters. He offers her cooked food, food that, he, or food, sorry, that she didn't glean for herself, bread and roasted grains, and it even comes with like a, a dipping sauce. Life's suddenly pretty good for Ruth. I really like the insight of one of the commentators this week who said that for Ruth, who was essentially without family, we see in this action Boaz enveloping her just a little bit, but starting to envelop her into his wider family. She comes and sits and eats with him and his family at the mealtime, starting to see some of the kindness of Boaz. See, Ruth started the day before as a foreigner, gleaning meagre pickings, searching for a lost grain here or there, down on her hands and knees, collecting them. And now she sits with the harvesters in a family circle, eating till she's full, and she's even got some left over. The prayer that Boaz has prayed is already starting to be answered. I think one of the questions that Ruth as a book asks us to think through as we're reading it is, how does God work in the world? What do you think about that? Is God still at work in the world? Is God at work in the everyday occurrences of life? Is it God ordained that Ruth would begin her gleaning in the very first field that she went out to look for food, in that of Boaz's? Did God cause or bring about Boaz to be in a particularly good mood on the day that Ruth started gleaning in his field? Here in the book of Ruth, it's not kind of presented as just chance, is it? The narrator doesn't say explicitly that God is behind these things. 
That does actually happen in chapter 4 where Ruth conceives a baby and the action is directly attributed to God. But it looks like as we read through this, doesn't it, that these things are happening because of the providence of God. Well, so I wonder today, is God still at work in this world? What do you think? Is God involved in the provision of your food? He seems to be in the provision of food for Ruth and Naomi. I wonder, is he involved in the way that you go about your work? Or the way you go about raising your children? Do you think God's at work today? And if you do, does that make a difference to the way about you live your life? I think these are some of the questions that the book of Ruth asks us to think through. Well, the story goes on, the meal is now over, and Ruth goes back out to glean in the field. And Boaz says to his men in verse 15, he says, Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. I don't know exactly what he means by gleaning among the sheaves. It's a little bit hard to understand what he's saying here. But the thrust of what's happening is fairly clear, isn't it? Boaz is saying to his men, men, I want you to make things a little bit easier for Ruth from now on. Throw down some grain in front of her or make her job easier. She can have a free ride today. And so Ruth gleaned and gathered and threshed and her work for the day amounted to an epa of grain. When we read that the first time, most of us probably go, like, so what? Remember, gleaning was like collecting seeds one by one. Imagine them kind of scattered across the field. It'd be like they're scattered across the carpet here, down on your hands and knees, picking one up at a time. Sometimes you get to pick on the edges of the field where the grain is already there. How much do you reckon you'd collect in a day if you were to go about gleaning? Now, this is kind of what I expect the average person managed to glean in a day. Let me show you what Ruth managed to glean, what an epa of grain looks like. This is an epa of grain. An epa is 13 kilos. That's what she collected. She's had a pretty good day, hasn't she? And this is what you normally get as a gleaner. This is what she's collected. And it's down to the generosity and the kindness, maybe even the love and the provision of this man, Boaz. At the start of the chapter, Ruth and Naomi literally had nothing And now they have this much grain. Kind of days and days and days worth of what she normally would have collected as a gleaner. They have an excess and it's really all because of the kindness of Boaz. And I love what Tim has to say about this. I'll try and capture the sentiment as best as I can. He says something like this. The law required Boaz to allow Ruth to glean in the field. To collect the leftovers that the harvesters had been through. That's the provision of the law. We read that in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Foreigners, widows, fatherless, all that Ruth is, they're allowed to go and collect the gleanings in the field. And Boaz kind of takes that law and he kicks it out of the park, so to speak. Kicks it out of the park with kindness because he gives Ruth his protection 
The law never stipulated that. He allows her to drink water that, her men, that his men collected. He feeds her from the family meal to the point that she has some left over and some to take home for Naomi. And then finally, Boaz just changes the way that she gleans so that at the end of the day, she has an epa of grain, 13 kilos to take home for Naomi. That is real kindness, isn't it? That is taking this idea of the requirements of the law and just saying, I'm going to give so much more than that. Boaz is excelling in kindness to the foreigner. I mean, short of backing up his grain wagon to Naomi's doorstep and just dumping a whole load onto her doorstep, he couldn't really have done any more, could he, to help these two women. Such is his kindness. So I wonder as we've been reading this story, wouldn't it be great if we were known as people who exhibit kindness like that? That we'd have kindness in spades. I wonder what things you'd do differently if your week was focused on excelling in kindness. Would it change the way that you treated clients in the workplace or customers? Would you be more patient to that difficult relative? Would you use your time differently? See, Boaz's kindness is so extreme, so extreme in the way that he acts. It got me thinking a little bit about how Boaz is a bit of a reflection on Jesus. This is the ultimate expression of kindness. It's worth mentioning that the New Testament, um, although it often holds up Old Testament figures as being a bit like Jesus, a type of Jesus, it never does this with Boaz, actually. But the comparison is there, I think, for us to make. We'll see this particularly next week when we look at Boaz being a redeemer of Ruth as well. But in a way, we do see something of the character of Jesus in the actions of Boaz. Particularly in the way that he acts with kindness. But in Jesus, we see an even greater example of kindness. In verses 15 to 16 of chapter 2, we see Boaz kind of lightening Ruth's load. He makes the task of gathering grain easier by asking the men to purposefully drop barley in front of Ruth so she can collect it more easily. She's already been enveloped into his family. And it reminds me of the kindness that Jesus speaks of for those who are enveloped into his family. Jesus makes our load lighter. I invite you to come with me to Matthew chapter 11. It's on page 1518 or 1518 of your Bibles. Matthew chapter 11 verse 28. It's a great promise of Jesus about what life is like with him. So I'd encourage you to turn there, page 1518. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Boaz lightened Ruth's load, and here Jesus speaks of his yoke being easy and light. I don't think this means that if you're part of Jesus' family, you'll never go hungry. I don't think it means that you'll always have plenty of barley. But how many of us have felt in our life weary and burdened, not perhaps with the physical tasks of going about collecting heavy sacks of grain, but maybe you're weighed down by the burdens of 
broken relationships or feelings of inadequacy or stress and conflict at work or worrying about the future? Do you need a place for your soul to find rest? Because that's the sort of rest that Jesus is talking about, providing. Rest for our souls and peace and assurance that goes with that. Freedom from guilt and obligation. If you need that sort of rest, Jesus tells us that his yoke is light. That's the promise of Jesus for those who become part of his family. His yoke is easy and his burden is light because he's the son of the God of kindness. We see this expressed in the way that it just far exceeds the kindness of Boaz towards Ruth. You see, for Boaz, his kindness, it had a a massive impact, didn't it, on Ruth. She went home with this much grain, a whole sack full of it. She went home with lunch after she was fed with a doggy bag to give to Naomi. But for Boaz to show this generosity, it didn't really cost him that much, just allowing her to glean a little more easily. But in Jesus, we see his kindness, his love, extending to the point that he gave up his own life for us. Let me read some words from Romans chapter 5. You'll find them on page 1,750 of your Bibles if you want to go there. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 6. I think it describes wonderfully the kindness of God. Paul says this, the writer of Romans, in verse 6 of chapter 5. It says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's costly kindness, isn't it? That's taking kindness and booting it out of the park with generosity. That's the sort of kindness that Jesus has for us. See, Boaz acts with great kindness towards Ruth and Naomi. He goes above and beyond what's required by the Israelite law. But Jesus demonstrates his kindness to us in this way. While we were still sinners, he died for us. That's what our God is like, a God of kindness and love. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the offer of family that you hold out for us. We thank you for the way in which you provide for us. We thank you for the way in which you are at work in this world, bringing about what this world needs. Father, as we reflect on this story of Boaz and Ruth, we ask that you would shape us, to be a church that's known for its kindness and its generosity. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, who always and forever never stopped being kind towards us, that he would give up his life for us. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to worship and praise Jesus for his great act of kindness. That means we can call you our God. Amen.